Fun fact, does anyone know what today is? Sunday. Apart from Sunday, the 23rd, Pentecost Day. Um, that's your fun fact for the day. So uh, Pentecost falls on the 50th day after Easter. Um, and we read about it in Acts 2. That's when the Holy Spirit came on them, when they gathered together in the upper room. There was a sound of a great wind. The Holy Spirit came. The fire sat on their heads and they received the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. So go home and read about that, Acts 2. Um, today is the day of Pentecost. All right. I've got a PowerPoint. Um, so uh, we've been looking at faith practices over the past um, number of weeks um, in 1 Peter 3, verse 8 to 11. And today I'm going to focus on 1 Peter 3, verse 8. It's one of the practices mentioned in this first verse of that section. And I've put it up on the screen in my four preferred versions, um, just so you can see some slight difference in wording. So um, my topic for today is a humble attitude. So it says, uh, these are four different versions. So these are my four favourite versions when I'm reading the Bible. And when I was looking at this verse, I got all four and it, it was really um, nice to see the difference in wording. So it says, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. In the English Standard Version, it says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. In the New Living Translation, it says, sympathise with each other, love, one, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. And in the Amplified, which I go to when I want a bit more depth in, in the verse, it says, um, all of you be like-minded, united in spirit, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, courteous and compassionate toward each other as members of one household and humble in spirit. So when you look at these different interpretations of this one verse, you see these words, and I've put them in bold, humble, humble mind, humble attitude, and humble spirit. So when we look at the faith practice of humility, we're really looking at all of these things. We're looking at a humble attitude, a humble mind, a humble spirit. It all falls in under humility. And what we're going to look at today is... Um, how to keep a humble attitude, um, to, to not see ourselves as more important. Um, so shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you be here with us today. I pray that you open ears to hear what you want them to hear. I pray that you use my voice to speak what you want me to speak. I pray that you will uh, touch each of us where we need to be touched today. And I pray that you um, come and be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A humble attitude. Can I tell you a story? You can't really say no because <laughs> I've got the microphone. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about a lady called Gladys. Obviously, it was a long time ago because <laughs> her name's Gladys. Okay, so Gladys Allwood was born in London in 1904. She worked for several years as a parlour maid and, and then she attended a revival meeting at which the preacher spoke about dedicating one's life to the service of God. Gladys responded to the message and soon after, she became convinced that she was um, called to preach the gospel in China. At the age of 26, she became a probationer at the China Inland Mission Centre in London. But she didn't master the Chinese language. It was too hard. Um, and she failed the language side of it. Uh, she then heard of an older missionary, Mrs Jeannie Lawson, in China, who was looking for a younger woman to carry on her, on her work. 
she wrote to um, this older missionary and she was accepted if she could get there. If you can get to China, we'll accept you. Because she hadn't passed her language studies, um, the mission board wouldn't send her. But um, this missionary said, if you can get here, I'll use you. Now, she was a parlour maid. She didn't have enough money for the ship fare to sail from London to China. But she did have enough for a train fare. So in October of 1930, she set out from London with her passport, her Bible, her tickets, and two pounds, nine pence, to travel to China by the Trans-Siberian Railway. On the way, some of those European countries are at war, she ended up being detained by the Russians. She managed to escape with help from the Japanese, hopped on their ship, went to Japan, hopped on a ship from Japan over to China. Eventually, she ended up in China. She worked with Jeannie Lawson in China and they provided hospitality for travellers. They shared stories about Jesus. Um, Gladys also served the government for a while uh, as a foot inspector um, to stop foot binding in young Chinese girls. She became a national of the Republic of China in 1936 and she became a really revered figure amongst the people. She took in orphans, she adopted several herself and she risked her life many times to save those in need. This included um, when the Japanese forces invaded in 1938. She took 100 orphans up over the mountains to safety. Eventually, um, and she had a, a long, um, good missionary life, eventually she settled in Taiwan and she founded an orphanage and worked there until her death in 1970. So this story is how Gladys Elwood, a parlour maid from England, became one of the most famous missionaries in the 20th century. A woman who has been called the most noted single woman missionary in modern history. A popular biography about her was made into a movie. I think she dined with Elizabeth and Prince Philip. Um, but the most notable thing about her was her brokenness, her humility and her willingness to be available to God. She once said, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done for China. There was somebody else. I don't know who it was. God's first choice. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and he saw me, Gladys Allwood. You see, the Lord is not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. He desires a humble heart that says, here I am, Lord, send me. We should be thanking Christ for his love for us. And we should have a desire to serve him with a humble attitude. It says in Ephesians 3.8, Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is one example of a humble attitude. But what is a humble attitude, mind, spirit? What is humility? The more I looked into it, the more I realised that there are so many different definitions and explanations of humility. St Augustine once said, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds. Lay first the foundation of humility. So how then can we define humility? There are many, many different de definitions. So I'm going to quickly cover a few of them. So secularly, humility can be defined as a character strength, uh, modesty, empathy, acknowledgement and respects of other, others at a deeper level, as well as understanding and owning our own limitations. Perhaps humility is a mindset. Perhaps it's the opposite of pride or arrogance and self-importance. It could be based on a caring and compassionate attitude towards others. Socrates held that wisdom is above all, knowing what we do not know, 
an intellectual form of humility which acknowledges the gaps in our knowledge and humbly seeks to address our blind spots. The Confucian form of humility is profoundly other-orientated in spirit, valuing social good above the satisfaction of our own individual aspirations. Aristotle under, understood humility as a moral virtue, including self-knowledge and acknowledgement of the qualities of others. The psychological definition of humility relates to the degree with which we value and promote our own interests above others, modesty, fairness, seeing ourselves accurately, not more highly or lowly than what is appropriate. Is humility a quiet ego? Is humility li linked to self-abnegation, shame and sin? Is humility not admitting shortcomings but seeking to overcome them? Now, if you were more confused than when you came in, I understand. So what I plan to do is unpick humility and what it means for us as a Christian and as a faith practice. I think humility is a mindset. It's intricately related to our ability and our willingness to learn. Humble people are better learners. Humility in leaders fosters trust, engagement, creative strategic thinking, and it boosts performance. Humility strengthens social bonds, mental health, and physical health. I'd like to read today from James chapter 4. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you do not have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realise that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. So here James is describing the struggles between believers, and this is within the church itself, within the Christian community. In the first few verses he makes it plain that the struggles they have uh, didn't come from God, but stems from the evil desires within them, like jealousy. Read on verse 6 to 10. He gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honour. You see, even though they were Christians, they weren't acting like Christians. What James identified was the primary motivating factor behind their struggles was pride. Instead of submitting to God and God's ways, they were struggling with pride in the flesh. He even quoted Proverbs 3.34 in verse 6 to remind them that God would not stand by watching this go on, but that ultimately... God opposes those whose actions undermine proper order in the church and in society. You see, the struggles that James wrote about here are still struggles that we face today. They still occur today. The actions of the proud still undermine the proper order in the church and society, and God is still opposing them. James here gives us a clear solution. Humble yourselves before God. 
Instead of struggling with other people for whatever it is that we struggle or quarrel about, we should be humbling ourselves before God and seeking his will and his way in our life to deal with those struggles. For the things that we've done, we should repent, come afresh, renew our trust and loyalty in God because, yes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when you come close to God, he will come close to you. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honour. So when we talk about the attitude of humility, as I read through the scriptures, I put together five key points um, that I'd like to share with you today. First one is humility is an attribute of God himself. Humility springs from the character of God. You see, God is represented as the highest and the greatest Yet he is humble enough to notice the things which were created, not just the big magnificent things, but even the small things that are seemingly insignificant. Psalms 113 verse 3 to 9, it says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on heavens and earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. You see, these verses speak of the Lord's greatness, yet also speaks of his humility in noticing even the poor and the needy and the desires of the broken. We see humility also at the cross of Jesus. He reminds us there of our sinfulness and God's love for sinners like us. An attitude of humility is a way of life that finds grace and blessing in humbling ourselves under God's hand. You see, Jesus in every aspect is equal with God, but he set aside his privileges with which he came, to, with, which came with who he was and he took on the form of a servant in human likeness for us. You see, Jesus exemplified what biblical humility was. You read many times in the Bible of the things Jesus did, like in John 13 when he took a bowl of water and washed the disciples' feet. That was the role of a servant. He took on that role. He was fully God, yet he became fully man to be a servant, and that was to accomplish the will of his Father, which ultimately was the cross, And that was for salvation of sinners like us. See, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient even unto death on the cross. In Matthew 26 verse 39 it says, Jesus went on further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. The perfect sinless one, the almighty God, died a criminal's death for our benefit before returning to his rightful position of exaltation. And to me, that is what humility is. That's a humble mind and a humble spirit. We read in Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took on the humble position of a slave, and was born of a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. He died a criminal's death on the cross. 
Therefore God elevated him to the highest place of honour and gave him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. This is the perfect attribute of God. The second point is humility is not weakness. Humility is not a lack of dignity. It's not inadequacy. It's not worthlessness. See, Jesus is the supreme example of humility and he is full of worth and infinite dignity. Biblical humility is an exalting and praising of others, especially God, not the belittling of oneself. Rick Warren once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You see, humility can be very similar to the word meekness in the Bible. It's an attitude of humility towards God and gentleness towards people. It springs from that knowledge that God is in control of our lives, not us. And while humility and meekness may appear to look like weakness, they're not the same. You see, weakness is due to negative circumstances, such as a lack of strength or a lack of courage, whereas meekness or humility is due to a person's conscious choice, its strength and courage under control. When we look in Matthew 27, um, verse 39 to 44, it says, The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled to him. This is Jesus on the cross. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself, come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law and the elders also mocked him. They saved others, he scoffed, but he can't even save himself. So he's the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. He trusted God. So let God rescue him now if he wants, for he said, I am the son of God. You see, these leaders, they mocked and they spat on Jesus at the cross. You saved others. Come on, save yourself. They thought Jesus was weak because he refused to defend himself. Yet he was displaying the ultimate courage and strength when he restrained himself from taking vengeance on those who taunted him because he knew that his father was in control. You see, Christian humility causes us not to rush to defend ourselves, but to let God handle matters. See, Jesus had the power to destroy every single person who taunted him, but he submitted himself to God, allowing and knowing that the Father is totally in control. It's important to understand that we can still act with strength and authority, even when we are humble. And Jesus showed us this another time, when he cleansed the temple, when he turned over tables inside the temple. Um, we read about that in John 2. In verse 16 it says, Going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, Passion for God's house will consume me. You see, Jesus was consumed with passion for God's house. It was humility but in strength and courage. Moses also showed strength and courage when his leadership was opposed 
We read about that in Numbers. The scripture tells us that Moses was meek. He was the meekest man on earth. But we also read that he declared that the works that he was sent to do were of the Lord and not his own strength. And as a result of this declaration, the Lord honoured him. The third point is that humility will change your view of yourself. How then should we see ourselves? Because in reality, we were all created from dust. Who then is more important than, it, than another? Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 10 tells us that our righteousness is meaningless. It's insignificant. It tells us God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Jesus Christ so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. How are we saved? Through faith. It's a gift of God, not through works. We are his workmanship. Nothing we can do can get us to heaven. It's only through faith. Our deeds are worth nothing. In Isaiah 64, verse 4 to 8, it says, For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you, who works for those who wait for him. You welcome those who gladly do good and follow godly ways. But you have been very angry with us, for we are not godly. We are constant sinners. How can people like us be saved? We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags like autumn leaves we wither and fall and our sins sweep us away like the wind yet no one calls on your name or pleads with you for mercy therefore you have turned away from us and turned us over to our sins and yet you O lord are our father we are the clay and you are the potter and we are formed by your hand you see humility changes the way you see yourself When you see yourself as God's workmanship, when you see God as the potter, your view of yourself begins to change. You are created by him, so he must be proud of who you are. Humility accepts that. Maybe you're not as tall as you think you should be. Have you ever looked at it from a different perspective with humility? God created you the way you are, so you are perfect. And maybe that you being the way you are has enabled him to work powerfully through you for that very reason. You see, God continually moulds and shapes us. We're not designed to go through life alone. We are designed to live in God, for God. It tells us in John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, without him, we can do nothing. We cannot bear fruit, the Bible tells us, unless we abide in him. Unless we see ourselves with that humility, it changes our perspective. Think of yourself as a child. Children don't think of themselves as self-sufficient, do they? All the parents say, no. (laughs) Uh, I remember when I was 14, I got my first job at McDonald's, and that was over 20 years ago now. Um, 
And I was so proud that I was earning $7 an hour. I'd work one shift, sometimes two in a week. So if I worked five or eight shifts, you do the maths, I'd earn $35 to $56 a week. And I thought I was all that and more. I remember saying to mum and dad, you don't need to buy me anything anymore. I'm earning money now. Fortunately, they continued to support me. Um, because as a child, we don't understand how our needs are met. I thought I could be self-sufficient on $35 a week, when really it magnified my dependence on my parents to meet my needs. It's the same with us as Christians. We are not expected to be self-sufficient as children of God, are we? We think we can do it ourselves. We tell God, I don't really need you at the moment. Everything's going well. I'm doing okay, when in reality, it really magnifies our need and dependence on him. Remember that story in Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said to them, unless you become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we need to be like children not having tantrums and messy rooms, but understanding that we are not self-sufficient. We are totally dependent on the Father, our Father God. And when we clothe ourselves with an attitude of humility, we do this. You think of the faith of a child. The number of times I've walked along somewhere outside and one of my children have been standing there and already mid-air go, catch me. And you turn around and you catch them and they'll be okay. They have full faith that, that you'll catch them. And when they fall down and they skin their knee, no amount of lotion or band-aids will fix it. They just wanna be held in the arms of the one who loves them unconditionally and that's what makes them better. When they know they've done the wrong thing or they've failed and they come to you and you hold them and you forgive them, and they learn from their mistakes. It's the same way with us and God when we come to him as children. When we leap off a limb and we say, Lord, catch me, and you know that he will. When you've tried and you've failed and you're hurting and he holds you in his arms and says, my child, I love you. When you've done the wrong thing yet again and all you get is judgment and condemnation from the world, from yourself, from your friends, and he says, I forgive you. I forgive you, child. And that's what it means to become a child. That's the humility of a child, the dependence on the father. The fourth point is false humility is readily shown. Don't fake it. People who have false humility are proud of how humble they are. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 23 when he talked of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move a finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honour at the feast and the best seats in the synagogues. 
The greatest among you, it says in verse 11, shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Don't do just to be seen. Dare I say, don't post just to get a response. See, not everybody needs to know or have quantified every action that you take, every emotion or illness that you feel. Don't make the comment to get a reaction. You see, in our own eyes, what is happening to us is the most important. Yet, if this is the case in everyone's eyes, then how do we categorise the importance? You see, our importance is not in what other people think or feel, it's in God. And he will bring you to the place of honour when you humble yourself. Jesus told this parable as an example in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off to the side, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat on his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man, who went to, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Letting everyone know what you're doing does not mean you are humble. It means you are proud of what you're doing in your own strength. Jesus taught about it again and again in the scriptures. In Matthew 6, he said, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them for if you do you'll have no reward from your father in heaven so when you give to the needy do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others truly i tell you they have received their reward in full but when you give to the needy do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners just to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who debt against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, do not look sombre as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, 
but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He's teaching us here that our reward will come from the Lord. We don't need to declare our goodness to everyone around, but the Lord sees what is done in private. He sees the heart and he will reward us in due time. When we pray, we pray, don't give us what, you know, we shouldn't be praying, Lord, give us what we need for a full and rich life. It just says in the simple prayer, give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need for today, Lord, to sustain us through the day. It's about praying the right prayers and asking the right things from the Lord with humility. He will provide more abundantly than we could ever need or hope for. But we need to ask with a spirit of humility. And the fifth point is that humility may be found in affliction. Many times God uses affliction to teach us humility. Think of the pain a child feels when they touch something hot. You can lecture them all you want about what it will feel like, what will happen to their skin, what it may be sore, you may get a blister, but until they feel that hardship or that pain from touching the hot surface, they will never fully understand. It facilitates their growth because the suffering and pain allows them to grow into the wisdom and the maturity that's intended for them. You see, God loves us enough to allow some experiences of pain because this facilitates our growth. God is with us in the struggles we face. He doesn't stand aside in our trials. In fact, he's right by our side, if not carrying us through them. These trials often teach us humility. Thomas Merton once said, give me humility in which alone is rest and deliver me from pride, which is the heaviest of burdens. In Hebrews 5, verse 7 to 9, we read, While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learnt obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all of those who obey him. In Psalm 119, David writes, It is good for me that I am afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me to give me understanding that I can learn your commands. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in your faithfulness you have afflicted me. You see, affliction isn't nice, not for the person, not for those around them, not for God who loves him more than any earthly father could. But affliction is often used to teach humility. It's often at people's lowest that they experience their miracle, their revolution, their answer, that light bulb moment. It's in the deepest of affliction that you realize your eyes turn away from yourself and toward him. It's when there's nothing left to give, nothing left to hold on to, you deny your self-sufficiency, you give away your independence, you search for answers, and then you submit yourself into the will of the Father. It's when you have nothing left to give, you think 
but in fact you do. You have yourself and you give your all to him and you say, it's in your hands, Lord. You say, I tried. I did everything I could. I did everything I was supposed to. I did this and I did that and I behaved like this and I made sure I sought out everything I thought would work. But then you realise you forgot to humble yourself. You've put yourself first above others and above God. And when there's nothing left to give, nothing at all, you give your all and you give it to him. And that's when you reach that point of humility and your father God holds you and says, my child, I'm here. My child, you are strong. My child, have courage. My child, I need you to depend on me and not yourself. It's when you realise that although you tried and you thought you had everything, you realise that at the centre you didn't have him. Because in the world you can find the answer to everything. It's out there. You just have to find it. But you realise that when you're putting your faith into practice, it means looking at what's already in here. In your heart. Jesus is already in there. You see... The world doesn't know he's the answer because the world doesn't know that he's missing from their lives. How can you know what is missing if you've never experienced it? Logic tells us you must know of something's existence to notice its absence. You see, humility is not a light bulb moment. It's a process. It's a daily putting the Lord first. You do not become humble once and then remain humble for the rest of your life. It's a conscious choice, day in and day out, to have humility, that spirit and mindset of humility. The attitude of humility requires constant work, constant effort. It's about asking the right questions of God. We need to stop asking God whether we will get out of the situation, but ask God, what are you doing in the midst of it? See, the moment you take control of the answer, God doesn't control everything in your life. You see, God gives you choice. He gives you freedom. And we need to use this freedom to be in control of our soul state, even though we can do nothing to change the circumstance. We need to stop asking, what is wrong with me? Because you're allowing the devil and his demons to come in and tell you. And trust me, they have thousands of answers ready to tell you. It's the wrong question to ask. You see, your questions direct the integrity of your thoughts. Your questions direct the integrity of your thoughts. You ask the Lord, what are you doing in the midst of my life, in the midst of my affliction, in the midst of my circumstances? And a humble attitude says, I acknowledge your existence in my life, Lord. I acknowledge that I have put myself above you and above others. I've noticed your absence and it's not your doing, Lord, but that's mine. Humility is saying, I turn my eyes to you, Lord. Use me. Take me. I'm yours. Not what can I do for you, Lord, but how can you use me, Lord? And this is what it means to have a humble attitude, to not see ourselves as more important than others, but like Gladys, 
be willing to go and serve others. The willingness and humility to serve can be the greatest revolutionary tool in the world. I'll finish with this. C.S. Lewis once said, you see, God doesn't want something from us. He simply wants us.